I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up for just a moment. And then we've got two very special interviews this week. We've got the Reverend Callie Cawthon Friels, who is a bivocational pastor who identifies as a queer woman who is married to Haley. And she talks about what it's like to be a minister in this day and age. It's a wonderful, wonderful conversation that Autumn and I have with the Reverend. And then later on, Autumn and I sat down down with Reverend Charlie Johnson, who is the executive director of Pastors for Texas Children. This week, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Maine now needs to provide funding for uh, private religious education, and we're going to get his take on the matter for those of us who support the separation of church and state. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Arms folded, feet pacing the floor. It's written all over your face. The body doesn't hide our true feelings. It disregards promises made to keep the peace or just keep it to ourselves. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. We're giving our listeners a hand when discerning body language. That's our focus in season three. The church is called the body of Christ, so what does our body language say about perennial and pressing hot-button issues? What's costing us an arm and a leg? Who do we give the cold shoulder and keep at arm's length? When have we put our foot in our mouth or turned a blind eye? Why are we still sitting on our hands? Where do we toe the line? And why is the kingdom that is coming not on the tip of our tongues? In season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll address these questions in eight episodes, and I hope you'll be all ears. The Raceless Gospel Podcast is looking at body language. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Episode one drops on May 5th. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are you this fine Thursday afternoon. You had to think through it, huh? It's I did. been one of those weeks. It huh? has been one of those weeks. I've been on the road it a little ha- bit. I did something very unique that a lot of people don't get to do over the last month. Uh, we had some uh, a family a situation arise where we needed to do some car shuffling. I've got one boy, uh, adult son, out on the West Coast, another adult son uh, up in the East Coast. So over the last month, I got to drive from Los Angeles to Norman, Oklahoma, and then to Norman, Oklahoma, to Boston, Massachusetts. It was fascinating. This is an incredible place. Um- I, I like how you said not a lot of people get to do this <laughs> as if it was something pleasurable because that actually sounds horrific to me. Yeah, it's four days. But I still have kids who like want to, you know, stop and and go TT every five minutes and want to ask me, are we there yet? So yeah. maybe it's different when you're traveling with grown children. Well, well, th- th- that wasn't really the case because, you know, I'm over 50 now, and so I've got a TT every now and again. So. <laughs> I see, I see. Maybe you and my kids would be, like, yeah. really happy sojourners together. That yeah. would be good. Yeah. Me and your, your youngest daughter, you know, have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> your belief in mermaids and unicorns, for one, right? That's right. That's, That's exactly right. Sorry. We're glad you're uh, home. Yeah, um, we home. turned on... 
turn turned up the heater to welcome yeah, that. I really we appreciate that. Man, the South is just under an oppressive heat wave right now. Yeah, walking around in Boston uh, over the weekend, the high, and I'm not kidding you, was 61 degrees. Uh, it was it was really nice. But I know you like summer and being out in the sunshine and the heat. And, I uh, do. You're getting yeah. plenty of it. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Our, our youngest two are doing, um, we do this intensive swim whisper course with them just to make sure they can swim safely. And all of our kids have done this course, but it's, uh, it's, it's hot. It's a hot time to be a mama uh, sitting outside <laughs> waiting for swim practice to end. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, Autumn, you and I are going down to Dallas with some of our colleagues next week to attend the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly. While Good Faith Media is uh, uh, not officially a part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, we're a standalone organization, they are one of our dear partners. And so we're looking forward to going down to Dallas and seeing a lot of people. This is the first time they have met in person since the pandemic. And so it uh, should be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited to to see some old friends and to meet some new ones and not be on a Zoom screen, uh, be having a conference in person. Uh, really excited about that and to just introduce more and more folks to what we do, uh, have some sort of creative ways to feature our podcast and to talk about our different um, offerings that we have at Good Faith Media. So if you're going to be in the Dallas area next week, pop over and see us. Yeah, it's at uh, the convention center there uh, next to Reunion Tower. Well, not, not convention center. I'm so sorry. Um, it is at the Hyatt Regency uh, by Reunion Tower. And so it uh, should be a, a yeah. good meeting. We're going to have a booth there. So uh, for those of you who are planning on Attending, please stop by the booth, say hello. We would love to see you. Uh, we're going to be conducting some interviews while we're at the assembly. And we've got some other things going on. Reverend Starlet Thomas is going to be conducting a workshop on the raceless gospel. And Dr. Bruce Gorley is going to be presenting a workshop on Christian nationalism. Uh, and so it's going to, uh, we're, we're going to be present, uh, going to be around. It's going to be a good time. So I'd love to see everybody who's going to go down to Dallas next week. Yeah. I was a little sad my idea for the booth wasn't more widely accepted. I wanted to have a dunk tank with you in it, but <laughs> well, somehow we, I got outvoted. Maybe we could do a pie-in-the-face kind of thing. <laughs> hey, if, so, works, if yeah. somebody wants to write a big enough check, I will take a pie of anything in the face. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, we've got two interviews this week, Autumn, and they're fantastic. Uh, you and I sat down earlier this week with Reverend Callie Coffin Friels, uh, who's got a new book out, uh, Reclamation, a, Queer's, a Queer Pastor's Guide to Finding Spiritual Growth in the Passages Used to Harm Us. And it was just a delightful conversation. Now, what did you uh, glean from our time with Callie? I think as someone who is an ally, um, sort of a lifelong ally of the LGBTQ, um, our LGBTQ friends, it's always encouraging to me to see someone um, living their truth with hope in their eyes. Because as an ally, sometimes I lose my hope. Sure. I am exhausted of fighting this fight. And I cannot imagine if it was my very existence that people were calling into question. But uh, Callie just, she really had hope. And she was, that hope was grounded in um, in in her plans and in her, her vision for the future. And I was really encouraged by her. 
Yeah. I mean, it was it was just a great time with her, and she was an inspiration. And then also, you and I sat down with Reverend Charlie Johnson. The Supreme Court ruled this week in a six to three opinion uh, in favor of uh, of supporting religious schools with public funding funding in the state of Maine. And we didn't have a lot of time with Charlie, but uh, we got to to hear some hot takes on his response to that ruling. There are those of us who are strong supporters of the separation of church and state. And in the ruling, Judge Roberts seems to emphasize uh, the free exercise clause while completely ignoring the establishment clause. And then Justice Breyer, in his dissenting opinion, uh, reminds the court that there needs to be a balance struck between those two and in his argument uh, that the state of Maine had sufficiently uh, upheld that balance. Uh, but the court ruled uh, the other way. The majority went the other way, and we're just starting to see uh, the ramifications of the court now leaning to a more conservative bent when it comes to interpretation and application of the law. So uh, we had a good chat with Charlie and uh, hope that uh, uh, it can provide you some wisdom and talking points as you talk about this in your communities. So stay tuned, and uh, we're going to be right back with Reverend Callie Cawthon Friels and Reverend Charlie Johnson. Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I have a very special guest with us all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Reverend Callie Cawthon Friels is a bivocational pastor, writer, and spiritual director based in Atlanta, Georgia. She received her bachelor's in religion with honors from Carson Newman University and her master's of divinity from the McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. She currently serves as the pastor of congregational care at the faith community and works as spiritual director at Reclamation theology. When Callie is not pastoring or writing, you can usually find her cooking up something fun in the kitchen, hiking, playing nerdy board games with her wife, Haley, or cuddling with her two adorable cats. Her new book, Reclamation, A Queer Pastor's Guide to Finding Spiritual Growth in the Passages Used to Harm Us, is on sale now at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash bookstore or wherever you get your books. And Callie, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Mitch. I'm really excited to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new book. It is absolutely brilliant. In fact, a more thorough conversation about the book. Listeners, you can go listen to an interview between Callie and GFN media producer Cliff Vaughn on one of our other podcast, Good Faith Reads. It's a wonderful conversation. It's also located on her book page uh, at goodfaithmedia.org. Uh, it's, just a, it's a wonderful, thorough evaluation. She talks through the book 
book, and just it's a great conversation. We encourage you to go listen to that right after the end of this uh, this interview <laughs> as well. Uh, but Good Faith Weekly, that's us. We want to know more about your book. So, uh, Callie, tell us more about why you decided to write this book. Absolutely. So I think for me as a queer person, as many queer people and Christians who have decided to stay in the church have done, um, we've spent a lot of time with the verses that have been called the clobber passages, right? The handful of pieces of scripture that have been used to demonize LGBTQ folk over the years. Um, we are very familiar with them because we had to spend a lot of time with them in reconciling our identities and our faith. Um, over the years, there have been several fantastic Bible scholars, theologians, pastors who have done a lot of translation work, a lot of contextual study to identify like, well, what's wrong with how we've interpreted these? You know, what what are the um, what's the point they're missing here? Um, but a lot of their work, I found just kind of really stops when they say, hey, this isn't actually about hating on gay people. You know, the conversation <laughs> right. just ends there. And for me, that wasn't as life-giving. Um, one thing I talk about in the book is I'm a sucker for redemption. For me, mm-hmm. it's one of the uh, it's one of the most beautiful and attractive components of the Christian religion, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a unique aspect of the Christian faith. And so for me, it was just, well, is there anything redemptive here? Um, are there any constructive messages that anyone, um, but particularly queer folk, can take from these messages and apply to our own spiritual growth and development? Um, so that was really the question um, that led to the research that I did. You know, can anything good come out of these things? Um, particularly. So that's kind of where I started. And I think the answer to that question is a robust yes, um, since there's a whole book full of, uh, you know, conversation about those passages. And I hope that people find it instructive and nourishing and potentially healing um, is really my hope for the book. So that sort of answers our next question, which is, what do you hope people get from the books? The redemption, hope, healing. Um, Mm -hmm. And now that the book is out, are, are you starting to get some of that? Yeah, a lot of it has been private um, because I think the nature of the tender topic. Yeah, for sure. Um, But I have had people, particularly um, from my college days, you know, I went to Carson Newman University. Um, It is very heavily supported by the Tennessee Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we've all seen what's going on with the SBC in the news. Um, So I've and have experienced it firsthand, right? Yes, I, I, I will say the Carson Newman I experienced was very different if and only because I was convinced I was straight. Um, But that's a whole nother story. Um, (laughs) um, But I've had former classmates reach out to me and just highlight, you know, this part of the book was really meaningful to me, or I would have never thought to reframe this particular passage in this way. And so just kind of share privately, like what their um, frustrations and concerns have been about like coming out to their families and whatnot. So it's been really, um, I think, both, inspiring and kind of sobering to have people reaching out saying the book has impacted me in this way. And also, I know this is not a conversation I can have with my family right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a little bit of a a both and going on there. And Kelly, what I really appreciated about the book, and I'm going to speak your name in association with another friend of our podcast, uh, whom you know, and that's Cody Sanders. Um, What I really appreciate about your book and Cody's writings is that it acknowledges that 
as people are trying to come to an understanding, maybe they are on a spectrum of where they are in that understanding, whether they're trying to, if it's an individual who's trying to reconcile their, their faith and what they were taught growing up about their own sexuality or a friend or a colleague who's come out to them and now they're trying to figure out you know, how that fits into their theology. But then there's also those of us who are past that point. And what I like about materials that are being published now by you and, and Dr. Sanders is that you're acknowledging that, you're helping those people, you're giving tools to those people who find themselves in the mix of those situations. But for those of us who have gotten past that and you know have reconciled that and we are where we are now, you're starting to explore queer theology in an entirely new uh, light. And I really appreciate that. I mean, that it's this development. It's this emerging, uh, you know, built in, in history, obviously, but but a lot of exploration going on. And, and you talk about it in, in your redemption element of it. So I, I really liked it. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I think part of, um, you know, as we get into the discipline that is more, I don't want to say officially queer theology right. because queer theology is still kind of figuring out sure, what it sure. is as a discipline. Um, it's really interesting to be on this precipice of exploration and unknown. You know, in a lot of the research I did for the book, you know, I found a lot of those older arguments that we've already talked about. And then in many ways, it's like I was looking for particular things or trying to answer particular questions. And it's like, well, there's nothing out here that's like hinting at the things that I want to hint at. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a really exciting time in any kind of um, theological framework that is kind of being birthed, whether it's from um, deconstructions or attempt right. at reconstruction. Um, and so I think it's just a really exciting time to be digging into any kind of theology from particularly a queer lens because yeah. um, people are now, Dare I say excited to hear those voices? <laughs> yeah, um, And so I yeah. hope that that trend continues. Yeah. Well, I, I can't speak for everybody, even though I try to sometimes, but I'm excited <laughs> for those voices. <laughs> uh, well, uh, again, I could sit here and talk about the book all day, but uh, we want to encourage people to go to Good Faith Reads, uh, where there's an episode with you and Cliff Vaughn talking more thoroughly about the book, and it is just so well done. So listeners, go, uh, go give that a listen, and, and it's great. So let's change gears a bit. Uh, this month is Pride Month. Uh, June is always a wonderful time uh, at Good Faith Media and our communities, hopefully, uh, because it seems like Pride is becoming, uh, and I hate the word normalized, it's becoming more celebrated in communities, mm -hmm. uh, which is exciting to see. And so, you know, first and foremost, we want to wish you and everyone out there listening, happy Pride. And so, Kelly, let me just jazz begin hands. with this. Jazz hands. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> no one could see it, so I had to say it aloud. <laughs> Parentheses. <laughs> uh, so, Kelly, what does Pride Month mean to you? Pride means a lot of different things. So, you know, in terms of my history, history with Pride, um, I didn't come out until 2016. Um, so it was after... That was a tricky year to come out. Uh, well, um, <laughs> also the year my wife and I got engaged. Uh, so, Aww. you know, yeah. had to um, make sunshine where we could create yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my wife and I came out together in 2016, mm -hmm. actually, um, and didn't end up going to Atlanta Pride that year. We moved to Florida 
um, to help my friend Reverend Adam Gray start a church in St. Petersburg. Uh, it's now called Circle of Faith. If you're in the Tampa Bay area and looking for an inclusive, thoughtful community, like I would definitely recommend checking them out. They are phenomenal people. Um, but as a young church, we thought it'd be really powerful, um, particularly as a young Baptist church, to be involved in the Pride celebrations that year. And so we had a booth on the kind of like, there was one day that had a pride parade and the next day was more of a festival where all these different businesses and corporations are like giving out free resources and giving out free stuff. So we thought we'd have a booth, but because we were new, nobody um, knew why we were there. Like, mm. were we a church protesting pride and had decided right. to get a booth? Um, so ultimately I ended up making a sign that said, gay female pastor with an arrow pointing down and hung it from the top of our tent and just sat under it um so people the doctor know, is in right, right? like yeah. we, we are friends <laughs> and so we come in peace <laughs> right absolutely and so people started engaging us a little bit after that but you know and i know this is a little bit of a long story but i'm getting to the core of your question yeah, what does it mean to me um so this person uh comes up and they're a very gregarious person and they just come up to the table and they say where's the gay female pastor <laughs> she had heard about the sign take and me I'm, to your leader <laughs> right and i said oh that's me and the person and i engaged in this fantastic conversation about like oh it's so cool to see that a church is here and da 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 and they said i'm down with um my church from tampa we're a pentecostal congregation and i just kind of stopped them for a second i was like really you all are pentecostal because when people find out that we're Baptist and then the person slammed their hand on the table and said shut the expletive up y'all are Baptist <laughs> um and so not that kind of Baptist that, <laughs> right. and so that moment for me I think encapsulates what pride is about for me it's about community it's about welcoming mm -hmm. people back into the fold it's about recognizing that you know we're all in this together we come to it from different walks of life and that we get oftentimes have to let go of the preconceived notions that we have about one another right. so like if i had met this person on the street and they told me that they were part of a pentecostal church i would have been like mm, well you're not a safe person for me to engage right right that right. absolutely would have been the assumption in my mind and so i think pride is an invitation to let go of those assumptions and then for us as individuals to let go of our own inhibitions mm -hmm. right and to be unashamedly us and that's, um, that's what so I really like about pride. That's what I really, and I appreciate that answer. That's what I really like about pride is that, you know, there's this misnomer that pride is only for the LGBTQI or uh, IA plus uh, community. But the reality is pride is for us all. And we get to participate and, and celebrate in our diversity uh, and in our community. And certainly the LGBTQ community is part of our community. And so that's, I, I, it's, it's just a beautiful expression. It's a beautiful month. Uh, to, to be a human being, and so I, I just I I really like this this month. So yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun. We had sort of a similar experience with our church. We um, had Pride a few weeks ago, um, and in our town, and there was I mean there's like a giant row of churches, right? I mean mm -hmm. just a giant row of face painting, and our kids were out, and they had flag. It was amazing. 
And I was over at the moon bounce with some of my little ones. And there was a, a group of people walking up and they were just talking. I just kind of overheard. They're like, could you believe all the churches that were here? I just had no idea. There were so many places we could go. And I'm like, yay. Mm-hmm. Like just being able to find those safe harbors um, in a state that is not always so safe. I think mm-hmm. it's so important. Right. And I feel that as you know, a pastor in Georgia, Right. You know, we are in like the heart of the Bible Belt. Um, Atlanta is kind of like a mostly blue, sometimes purple spot in the midst of all of that. Um, But I think, you know, the experience that you had at Pride a couple of weeks ago and the experience that I had um, in 2017 at the St. Pete Pride also highlights a really sobering reality for anyone who wants to be an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. And that is when kindness from Christians surprises people, that's a symptom of a larger problem in the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's also something important to consider. Yeah. And that was really interesting to see uh, here in Norman. And I've heard that uh, vocalized by other people uh, at their pride parades and, and festivals. Um, Kelly, why, what, what is contributing to the reality that more and more churches are becoming affirming, welcoming, and affirming and advocates for the LGBTQ community, uh, because it seems to be on the rise, uh, and, and it happened quickly, it seemed. So is there something that you can point to or talk about that you see more and more churches uh, with that, that are being be, be more welcoming and affirming uh, of our community? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think that there are a lot of things going into it. And this is something, you know, I will throw a disclaimer out there. I have not done any significant research into this. So this is all just pet theories. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, I would think um, the openness of the younger folks. Mm-hmm. You know, in my day job, I work with a lot of high school students. And so I hear them talk about their friends and they tell me a little bit about their personal lives. And so just seeing the welcome in the younger generation and potentially churches see that that is a priority to this generation of folks that being welcome of a diverse community of people and diversity across all spectrums, not just sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, So I think that that could be an impetus Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's for years, as long as I can remember you know, back in my undergrad days, seminary days, and before, the main conversation and the main fear for churches is how do we get the young people and how do we get the young people to stay? Mm-hmm. Um, and this this generation of young people has no tolerance for intolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. And I think, right, and I think churches are picking up on that for sure. Um, but I also think that there's something a little bit less tangible going on. You know, I think that you know, uh, it was Britt Montgomery wrote in the Pride series last week for Good Faith Media, likening Pride to Pentecost Mm -hmm. and how the Spirit is just moving through people's hearts and moving through um, these communities and allowing for this conversation. And I think that, you know, that's not necessarily something that we can quantify or research or anything like that. Um, But I do think it's significant, especially when I think about passages like the one for Joel, where it says that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters and the sons and daughters will prophesy and whatnot. Like folks are listening to the fact that queer people um, are people of faith. Not that we want to be people of faith, not that we want to be spiritual, that we are. 
and that God loves us as we are. And we also have important things to contribute to the communal understanding of the divine. Um, and that's yeah. something that, you know, I don't, I don't think necessarily that we can help guide that process. Uh, but that's a heart conversation. Sure. Um, and that takes a longer time to develop, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, you've already shared part of your story with us, uh, and you identify, we've talked about this already, as, as a queer pastor married to your wife, Haley. Um, and, but I, I just think, what must it be like? And I think there's a lot of listeners out there that are asking the same question. What is it like? Can you give us a glimpse of what it's like being a queer pastor in today's world? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important to highlight that I'm not just a queer pastor. Right, I'm a right. queer pastor that uses she, her pronouns, um, though I don't present terribly femininely, not in like a culturally stereotypical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also white, which affords um, different privileges in different places, right? Sure. Um, on most days, being a queer pastor is fantastic, and I do all of the things that pastors do. I reach out to my congregation. Um, I touch base with them. I offer to pray with them or have one-on-one time if they need it. Um, I'm thinking about what my role is in this week's worship service, you know, and just like rather ho-hum in a really good way. Um, but then there are also other things, I think, um, that i am am aware of simply because of my intersections, mm-hmm. right? Um, is this conversation that we're having right now in this Bible study safe for everyone who's here? Mm-hmm. Could this potentially be triggering for someone? Could someone feel isolated by this? And so like thinking through all of these questions and if I'm leading that Bible study, thinking about preemptively, what can I do to make sure that we don't go down this potentially triggering rabbit hole? Um, And then also in other instances, it kind of depends on the context, but certainly safety comes up. You know, if I'm not at my church and I'm out in the community acting as a clergy person in the community, like, is this a safe place for me to be? Um, And sometimes, you know, I get weird looks because, again, I'm uh, I'm a woman, but I also have like a little beard on my face. Like that's just how what my face does. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's um, confusing to people when they see me, they don't know how to categorize me. Yeah. Um, and so that can be challenging sometimes because I am very much a person of deep conviction when it comes to advocating for my community. Um, you know, we've done various things at our church to do that. Um, again, in Georgia, which can be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, uh, scary sometimes. Um, but it's also, I think, kind of an act of solidarity in our church. Our church is also a predominantly Black church that's LGBTQ plus affirming, um, which from what I hear, that makes us particularly extra a unicorn. People yeah. didn't know spaces like that exist. Um, but we helped with poll watching in the mm. uh, 2020 election. And then also in the Thank runoff you. election. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it was, it, we, there were some interesting encounters, um, yeah. but we did it. Um, yeah. And it was moments like that where it's like, I wonder if my, my other colleagues have to um, engage this right. level of scrutiny and like, do I feel safe here? And I know um, that my colleagues at church um, who are people of color absolutely do mm-hmm. um, in a very different way. And so we talk a lot about how particularly in our congregation, we talk a lot about how 
the similarities and say like the civil rights movement and the um, gay rights movement um, overlap and but they don't negate the differences like there's a lot that we can learn from one another we can support one another um, in that good work and I think that also comes down to looking out for each other making sure we have each other's backs so that we're in if we're in contact like that where we're doing public ministry in a potentially precarious place um, that we know you know we got each other Sure. Yeah. So it sounds that's, like to me really, that yeah. you're you're just a great pastor. <laughs> that's what it just kind of sounds to. like to me. You're just we a phenomenal took a pastor. We vote and we decided you're a really great pastor. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank absolutely. you. <laughs> yeah. So as the Christian minister, what are your thoughts on the latest legal attacks on the LGBTQ community from Florida to Texas? I mean, it's all the whole my beer states, right? Uh, laws are being passed <laughs> threatening the rights of gay and trans people um, and gay and trans children, for heaven's mm-hmm. sake. Uh, what do you think is going on with these? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I I would normally not use words this strong, um, but I'm going to because I can't think of another one. I, I think they're evil, yeah. um, first of all. And for a country that claims to be so committed to the separation of church and state to allow for arguments that are religiously backed in some capacity to be a justification for passing said laws is particularly atrocious, especially when we think of like the, uh, the Supreme court's ruling on the, uh, um, school vouchers in Maine. I don't know if you all saw the news on that. Yeah. In fact, our, our next guest is going to be Charlie Johnson. Uh, so he'll, he'll be on in just a moment. So a little foreshadowing, um, (laughs) I guess. Um, but I think that that is particularly vile. Um, because as for those of us who are incredibly serious about our faith, we know that there is no such thing as certainty in what we do. There are a couple of things that we can say with conviction, and that is God loves us, Jesus loves us, and they would have us show love to the world. Everything else is a bit more ambiguous. And for anyone to claim with absolute certainty that this is what God is telling me to do, or God needs us to pass this law, like it's just your own agenda and you're putting God on it to act as a stamp of approval. Um, and I think if more people engage their faith more critically, they might come to realize that, but that's a different soapbox. Um, when I think of my role as a clergy person in response to these bills, um, I think it's very clear to say like, you know, as, as a clergy, clergy person, um, that they're not good. They're going to cause damage. Like it is an incredibly sobering reality to me um, to know what the suicide prevention measures are Mm -hmm. for LGBTQ youth, particularly trans youth. um, And how one, having one affirming adult in their life can reduce the suicide rate in LGBTQ youth by about 50%. Mm -hmm. But then we see all of these adults who have the power are making these laws that are just reinforcing this terrible idea that they are not fearfully and wonderfully made, Mm -hmm. that there's something wrong with them, that, you know, either God made a mistake with them or they've misunderstood how God made them. Like, I, I can't imagine the mental health ramifications that that's going to have. Um, for this generation of kids over the next several years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a particularly 
it's a particularly hard thing to think about. And I think it's important for people of faith, whether you're clergy or not, to stand up and say, this is not okay. Amen. Amen. You know, we've yeah. we've you know we've talked about it here today. Uh, we've made so many great strides from, you know, the stories about churches, uh, you know, you know, filling the walkways now at pride events, uh, to you know, what's going on within theology and within the church. I mean, we've made so many strides both within the church and outside the church. It's just so disheartening to see some of these laws that are being enacted right now. Uh, and the blowback that we're, we're hearing from states like uh, Florida and Texas and, and others who are following suit. And as you can imagine, the uh, political ads right now are getting pretty grotesque uh, uh, in these primary states, trying to out-conservative one another, uh, that are really targeting especially mm-hmm. trans uh, kids. And it's just, it's just really disheartening. just reminds us that we've got a lot of work to do, and you are part of that work. And we appreciate it so much, Kelly, that what you're doing, uh, the book is again, uh, Reclamation, A Queer Pastor's Guide to Fighting Spiritual Growth in the Passages Used to Harm Us. It's wonderful. It's on sale right now at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash bookstore. Go and order it today. Do not pass go. Order it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book that you'll enjoy immensely. But Kelly, before we let you go, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation, Autumn gets the last question, as she always does. So, Autumn, take well, it away. it was my idea, right? Well, yeah. It was my question, my ideas. <laughs> I just claim it all the time. And I get to have the last word with you, which is fabulous. Um, <laughs> our tagline at Good Faith Media, where we are trying to be this voice of safety and reason um, for people of faith who aren't always represented in the media as such, um, our tagline is, there's more to tell. And so we love to ask our, our treasured guests here at Good Faith Weekly what their more to tell is for our listeners. Awesome. So for those listening today, whether you're queer or, or cishet or wherever you are in that journey, journey of discovery, um, my last word for you or the more to tell for you is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God loves you as you are. God meets you where you are, and God will continue to meet you where you go. So keep at it. Keep at the good work. Keep standing up when you know that you need to, and keep being that person in other people's corner that they need. Amen. Amen. That is a great way to end this. So, Kelly, thank you again for being with us uh, this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to our listeners, uh, stay tuned. Our next guest is going to be Charlie Johnson. As uh, Callie mentioned a moment ago, the Supreme Court ruled this week in the state of, uh, in a case uh, coming out of the state of Maine, that it was okay to use public dollars for the funding of private uh, Christian education. And so Charlie is the executive director for PATH. Pastors for Texas Kids that advocates for public school education and separation of church and state. So stay tuned. We're going to talk to him in just a moment. Hi, I'm Tyler Tankersley, Senior Pastor of Ardmore Baptist Church, and we invite you to join us for our newest podcast called Speaking in Parables, where we explore the stories that Jesus told and how to apply them to our lives today. You can find more information at ardmorebaptist.org slash speakinginparables.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we are joined today with a very special friend of Good Faith Media and Good Faith Weekly, Reverend Charlie Johnson. Reverend Johnson is the founder and executive director of Pastors for Texas Children. Pastors for Texas Children is a ministry that serves Texas neighborhood public schools through prayer, service, and advocacy. They support schools in initiating school assistant programs with local congregations, promoting social justice for children, and advancing legislation that puts the needs of Texas children, families, and communities first. Charlie, welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch. Always good to be with you in autumn, and we love Good Faith Media, love everything y'all are doing to uh, educate us all about uh, God's work in God's world and advancing God's justice to all people. Well, we appreciate all the work that you're doing, not only in Texas, but with your sister organizations all across the country, supporting public education and the advancement of uh, educating our children because they're our most precious commodity. uh, Well, it's so true. And thank you for just saying those sentences. And they're always powerful to you, to us. Uh, We are in eight states now and ministers of all traditions know that we've got to educate our children and the best way to do that not a perfect way but the best way to do that is through the public trust and so that's what we do we come underneath all the noise try to on the republican side on the democratic side on in the on the independent side whatever your political point of view is to say look let's unify around wonderful effective neighborhood public schools absolutely and uh, we'd love to talk to you more about the ministry of pastors for texas children but we've invited you here today to talk about something specific for our listeners who want to know more about uh, the ministry of pastors for texas children just go to pastorsfortexaschildren.com and read all the great and important work that they're doing for kids all across this country. But Charlie, we brought you here today to talk about the Supreme Court ruling that came out this week. The Supreme Court on Tuesday ruled that the state of Maine violated the Constitution when it refused to make public funding available for students to attend schools that provide religious instruction. The majority opinion that was written by Chief Justice John Roberts was a broad ruling making clear that when state and local governments choose to subsidize private schools, they must must allow families to use taxpayer funds to pay for religious schools. So, Charlie, when you heard the news this week, what was your response? Well, we were dismayed. The Supreme Court has uh, slowly but uh, consistently chipped away at what Thomas Jefferson called the wall, separating the church from the state. We were talking about universal education as a provision of God's justice provided and protected by the public. Those dollars to those religious schools in Maine are going to come out of the public treasury. So there's two objections that we have to this ruling. One is that they strip already strained dollars from the public Uh, education budget. But the second one, and the one more specific to our conversation, coming out of the Baptist movement, Mitch, as you well know, is that we think it is a violation of God's law of religious liberty, that uh, anyone is forced to advance any religious purpose, any religious cause. Now, let's just break it down. That religious school, regardless of Baptist or Jewish, I think it was some Jewish plaintiffs in this particular case, uh, regardless of the theological or denominational or faith tradition, well, that school was started in order to uh, teach the tenets of that religion, 
That's why it was started in the first place. Uh, and so to make Maine taxpayers channel their money to support those religions is a violation of the First Amendment. Now, you know, the Constitution of Maine clearly says that none of this money should ever go to any sectarian purpose, but the Supreme Court has ruled precisely that, mm -hmm. that that public money can go to a parochial and sectarian purpose, and we think it's wrong. Not only wrong, we think it's dangerous. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't automatically mean that every state is going to have a voucher plan, uh, but it does mean that the voucher proponents are empowered and emboldened now, and we'll have it all over again here in Texas. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and with all and due respect to Chief uh, Roberts, uh, even in his opinion, he seemed to want to have it both ways, because you know the, the case itself, Carson versus Macon, was about these rural places, these unpopulated places that do not have secondary schools, yeah. and therefore allow uh, through the the district. District, uh, families to go to other public schools or to private schools, but they refused to pay for religious education if they chose a private religious sectarian school. And so in his argument, he simply says, well, there's ways to, to get around this, and that is simply to build more schools. So he wants to take funding away from public education while at the same time encouraging <laughs> them to build more schools. It's like, you can't have it you know, you can't have it both ways here. Mitch, uh, former commissioner of education in the state of Texas, our, our dear friend, Dr. Mike Moses, told me yesterday that it takes about $30 million to build an adequate elementary school today. That's a lot of money. It's a whole lot of money for Maine. I hadn't checked the population of Maine, but I imagine it is a sparsely populated state with a fairly low and stretched public education budget. No, the Supreme Court's proper interpretation of the Constitution of the United States is to keep that doctrine very, very clear. You mentioned that Justice Roberts was all over the map. Uh, that's exactly right. He, his his uh, uh, papers on this subject are more confusing than they are clarifying. <laughs> uh, he, of course, is ambivalent about it, right? right? He's the centrist trying to keep the court this increasingly what shall we say, political court, the whole you know, purpose of the establishment of a Supreme Court by our framers was to keep this as a non-political entity. I got to say something else. It's not going to be popular. You're going to get some letters about this. You know, I'm troubled by this very, very conservative Roman Catholicism now that wants to take the the uh, polit political the political machinery and constitutional traditions of our country and manipulate them for the advancement of their own religion and we have to note now that the majority of justices are from the Roman Catholic tr tradition how many is it five of them mm -hmm. now or, or maybe not the majority but five or six are from the Roman Catholic tradition now on the court and I. You know, I'm deeply offended as a Baptist. I I don't want my money going to a Roman Catholic school that teaches the veneration of Mary or the 
apostolic succession or uh, the uh, infallibility of the Pope. And I would assume that Roman Catholic folks don't want their tax dollars going to Baptist schools that teach the priesthood of all believers. They don't believe that. They believe in apostolic succession. No, there's a priest, and that priest comes from Peter in the New Testament. Well, look, we're Baptists. We don't believe that, Mm -hmm. and we don't want that taught. In with our tax dollars, Mm -hmm. should we go to great lengths to protect their right to teach that voluntarily in their free and voluntary assemblies? Absolutely. And our Baptist foremothers and forefathers have done exactly that for a long, long time, protected the dignity, the freedom, the liberty of conscience. So, you know, we we're very troubled by this ruling and uh i think that i'm so glad the good faith media is doing a piece on it you know it's not going to be the end of this i mean we're going to see this court issue other interpretations that as i say just chip away just hack away at this foundation we can talk about how religious liberty basically has carved out the tradition of American civil liberties in this country. Yeah. It's a troubling ruling. The majority seems to emphasize the free exercise clause within the First Amendment while ignoring the Establishment Clause. Justice Stephen Breyer filed an 18-page dissent that Justice Kagan joined and Sotomayor joined in part. Breyer emphasized that the First Amendment's free exercise and establishment clauses were intended to strike a balance on that interaction between government and religion that you were just talking about, with the ultimate goal of avoiding religious strife in a country that now has over 100 different religions. Maine's program is intended to foster precisely this kind of balance, Breyer argued, and the state has the right to opt not to fund religious schools. Do you think Justice Breyer is correct? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the... The, the, the main law, uh, as many state statutes say, uh, Autumn, very, is specifically prohibiting money going to religious schools. This is explicit in these, in these state constitutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Texas Constitution calls specifically, explicitly, for public free schools. Mm -hmm. There is a reason for that. And the reason is because Texans did not want their, at the beginning of the Republic, did not want their money specifically going to Roman Catholic schools under the authority of a Mexican archbishop. They were very, very clear about that. And of course, they extended that liberty also to Roman Catholic Texans. This is, you know, this is the beauty of the of the public square isn't it you know it's not a perfect you mentioned the balance between these two clauses there shall be no advancement of religion nor prohibition on it that's pretty basic learn it in fourth grade (laughs) it's you learn it in fourth grade and you got to keep these two you know these two sides of this uh, law balanced, and we think that the court has not done that, and we think that it's not. Uh, this ruling, in particular, really tips the scale over on the uh, over on the establishment side. It is not the right of the government of the state of Maine to uh, support or to endorse or to affirm my particular religious point of view. 
Their responsibility is to keep this a neutral zone mm -hmm. so that public dollars go to public institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a problem, as Mitch, you mentioned. Maine is a rural state. But let me tell you, there, if there are no public schools in those rural communities, I guarantee you there are no private schools. That money's not going to go to some little isolated mountain town over there on the Canadian side of that state. <laughs> that money's going to go to a parochial school in a highly populated area, right? Mm -hmm. and, that, and those families are lining up right now to take that voucher money that will not sufficiently cover. we got to say this. We're trying to get a lot of things into a short broadcast, but we got we got to say that money isn't going to cover the cost of a private school education. No. It's going to supplement the tuition of children already in private schools. That's right. what it's going to do. And the court must have known that. This is why Roberts is all over the sure. map, uh, because he opens himself to a lot of vulnerability, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to cover all these contingencies. Uh-uh, you failed, dude. You <laughs> should have drawn the line here and sent the message, particularly at this time in our nation's history, mm -hmm. when there are a lot of religious forces wanting the establishment of their religion by the government of the United States. Absolutely. So let's talk about some uh, practical implications of this decision. Uh, you know, I've heard you speak on numerous occasions about the privatization of public education being the ultimate goal of privatizers uh, because it's such a lucrative industry that people are unaware of, uh, talking about a billion-dollar industry. So in light of SCOTUS's decision this week, where do you see this going in states and local communities across this country? Yeah, we're seeing it all over, aren't we? What's happened, people ask me every day, and you too, Mitch and Autumn, you know, why this push for private school vouchers? Why the, this uh, antagonism toward public schools? By the way, when you talk to parents, as Gallup polls, as the Gallup pollsters do, overwhelmingly Americans support their public schools. It's like 75 or 80% when, again, you get underneath all the media noise. But we have had in the wake of COVID, COVID is the reason, in my view, for this remarkable antagonism and animus against public education. We were isolated. We uh, manipulative forces took advantage of that isolation and inserted all kinds of messages of fear and yep. intimidation. That's what has happened. Uh, you know, and scarcity. I, it's scarcity. Racism. You, <laughs> yeah. that, the kinds of issues y'all address very carefully, very thoroughly, and very bravely every day, all of those things. It's the shadow side of our human nature, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you repeat a lie uh, loudly enough, uh, often enough, there's going to be enough people to believe it, to show up at the school board meeting. This is what they've done all over America. So very powerful and rich right-wing forces, I'm going to name some names, associated with the Cato Institute, with the Heritage Foundation, with the American Legislative Exchange Council. These are th three outfits based in Washington, D.C., funded by very rich billionaires, Charles Koch being the lead billionaire. Uh, Cato Institute alone 
they troll us on Twitter, so we know something about them. <laughs> a $30 million annual budget. Jeez. And so those people are channeling money to school board races. We hear in Texas all the time, 250000 quarter of a million dollars spent on a school board race. Let that sink in. That's, That's not local money. Yeah. That's not no. the candidate's money. No. That's money out of Washington. This young man, Christopher Rufo, with some kind of outfit in New York, I think it's called the Manhattan Institute, even wrote a paper. Look, let's propagate the lie of critical race theory. Let's go into communities in Texas and in, uh, you know, in Arizona, and let's tell local folks that public schools are promoting racism. Mm -hmm. And that's what they've done. And they, uh, you know, decent people don't want racism right, uh, sure. taught in public schools. Decent people don't want pornography in their public schools. And so, you know, the, will you go with me to the school board meeting tonight? Well, yeah, I guess I'll show. And they go down there. And they just, you know, these are people who are seized with fear. By the way, uh, uh, let me give your listeners some good news. While the national media has covered some of the most frightful, most fraught localities in this campaign of disinformation and lying, overwhelmingly, Mitch, overwhelmingly, school board races went to solid, moderate, inclusive organic community-based leaders who love their public schools. So that's we great really had a pretty good primary season. Yeah, that's awesome. And now, you know, uh, so that's something that we're trying to say too. Chin up everybody. Good. Chin up. Yeah, so Charlie, yeah, let's, let's kind of play that out a little bit for our last question. What can people who want to honor the separation of church and state and support public education adequately, um, how, what can they do uh, and Gosh, how can they be? Question. How can they be active in their local communities? Oh man, what a great question! And you have just pitched me a, a, a softball, brother. <laughs> this, this is, you know, this is what really gets us excited. But it, so, a, a, a list of things comes to mind. Get involved in your public school. Mm -hmm. Even and especially if your kids are already educated, Jana and I have kids who are in their middle adulthood now get involved over there at Westcliff Elementary School, you will see people from all backgrounds economically, religiously, racially get involved, it is the building block of America understand that our that our forefathers and framers of our constitutional republic knew that we were going to be coming from very, very divergent and different backgrounds. So you want, people are basically fair if you can get underneath their fear. We're basically yeah. fair. You appeal to the better angels of our nature and you provide this place for everyone. That means I cannot come in with my Baptist doctrine. Okay, mm -hmm. so I, so basically, the public school is this laboratory for religious liberty and church-state separation. Autumn's already said it. Yeah. She heard this in fourth grade, right? <laughs> and Absolutely. and then in fifth grade, and in sixth grade, and in seventh grade, it's called Americanism. It's called patriotism. It's called basics. You know, it's called civics. We used to call it. So get involved in the public school. Secondly. Let's resurrect those old training union programs that bored us to tears when we were children, you know, 50 and 60 years ago, Mitch. And let's get out that material. The Baptist Joint Committee, BJC, has a host 
of materials. Good Faith Media does too. Let's go in our Sunday school classes and our Bible study groups. Let's start teaching the biblical principles of religious liberty. Why we believe as people of faith that the government should not advance religion. Why we believe that the Establishment Clause and the Prohibition Clause should be balanced. We want religious freedom in our own voluntary assemblies. No government has the right. Let me tell you what's going to happen in those main religious schools. What's going to happen is assessment, intrusion, accountability is going to follow that money. Mm -hmm. And the state of Maine is going to come to those Catholic schools in Portland and in Bangor. And they're going to say, now your kids have to take standardized tests. Uh, why? We're a private school <laughs> yeah. because you're receiving public money. That's why. Yeah. And we have yeah. to tell the taxpayers how their money's being spent. So you're going to see the violation. Talk about Justice Roberts all over the map, uh, y'all. You're going to see the violation of the free exercise clause, too. Yeah. You're going to well, see it. Yep. And it's going to happen, and it's going to happen quickly. So, you know, the third thing that comes to my mind is if you, if you want freedom for your own religious point of view, imagine ways you can defend the freedom for somebody whose religious point of view is different from yours, yeah. Yeah. particularly somebody of another faith, mm -hmm. particularly somebody of another denomination. Now, this, hey, this gets to us, too, mm -hmm. yeah. because we're on the more progressive side of the Baptist spectrum. We've got to go uh, make friendships with those folks in those fundamentalist Baptist churches. Yep. And we've got to find common ground with them. Yeah. And we've got to build bridges to them because we've got to go the extra mile to defend and protect their religious liberty also. That's well, it. Charlie, we really appreciate you joining us this week. Uh, when I heard the decision uh, come down from the Supreme Court, uh, you were the only one that came to mind, <laughs> and so and you did not disappoint, my friend. Thank you. I'm not. I feel I, I'm not an expert on constitutional law and the First Amendment by any chance, but but I am a pastor, as you well know, because yep. you and I have been in ministry together for decades. And like you, I am convicted about this. Absolutely. So thank you, Absolutely. thank you, Autumn. Thank you, Good Faith Media, for thinking of me and pastors for Texas children. Absolutely. Yes. If you want to find out more about Texas, uh, Pastors for Texas Children, go to pastorsfortexaschildren.com. But Charlie, before we let you go, we know that you got to run out of here really quick. Uh, Autumn's got one last question for you. Yeah, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. I feel like you already told us a lot, but leave us <laughs> with one more to tell, Charlie. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, you know, we're trying to, we're entering a discernment process with the Lord and trying to listen to the Holy Spirit about taking next steps, not only with churches helping schools, not only with advancing public education as a as a an electoral issue. We want people to go go in that voting booth and vote public education. But we're considering taking even more steps. Our our more to tell is is it time for us to uh, more robustly, more passionately get into communities with electoral issues, mm -hmm. with the concept of public schools as, you know, an electoral motivation so that we can get in office people that will protect the constitutional uh, freedom that we've been talking about in this program. Well said, my friend. Well, Charlie, it is always a pleasure to have you on uh, the pod, and uh, we wish you the very best, and we'll see you down in Dallas at the Quartet Baptist Fellowship General Assembly next week. 
looking forward to it. God bless y'all. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in this week. And as always, until next week, keep living good faith.